0: Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. I'm going to stop there. (laughs) The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. As I said, you can turn to page 402 if you'd like to follow along with things here. For now, let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. At the end of the greatest movie of all time, The Princess Bride, um, that's not a joke, Enigo um, Montoya, he, he's just killed Count Rugen, he has avenged his father after 20 years of hunting for him, and right at, near the end there, he, he turns to Wesley, kind of gets wistful, and he says, you know, I've been in the revenge business for so long now, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. And Wesley suggests turning to piracy, which may not be the best idea for everybody, uh, it's an interesting question, though, uh, because when you've been really working hard on something for a really long time and, and you finally finish, uh, there is a momentary euphoria and a sense of accomplishment, but then it's kind of like, all right, well, now what, right? And, and that's kind of where we find Nehemiah today, that the wall was done, but the story isn't over, and, and there's no time, really, for God's people to rest on their laurels. If this revival is to continue, they must keep working because the wall is not really the ultimate goal. The mission's a lot bigger than that. And so as we enter chapter 7 of Nehemiah, the wall is now done. The doors have been set. The enemies have been silenced. The haters have been put in their place. And now Jerusalem looks like a respectable city, at least from a distance. And really, by the end of chapter 6, it feels like the story you'd like it to end, at least in our minds. If this were Hollywood, that's probably what would happen. Yet there are seven more chapters to this book And and tempting as it would be to end our study there, that wouldn't make sense. That's not real life. The story is not over when the work of the wall is finished. And that's because this story is not about a wall. The wall is not a main character or even a secondary character. This story is about God and the revival that he is creating among his people. God is more concerned for his people than the wall. The question is, what happens now that the wall is complete? What's the next step? How do you sustain this revival and make use of the wall? Or maybe another way to think of it is, how do you save your progress? Yeah. That last question came to mind a few times for me uh, earlier this week. You know, look, if you've ever lost an assignment as a student that you were working on because of some computer glitch, then you know what I'm talking about. You understand how, how heartbreaking that is. And, and I have had those kinds of moments of panic and desperation And so earlier this week, I was filling out a FAFSA for for Grace, and I admit it was like a huge relief. There was a button there to save my progress when I got stuck. I'm like, well, isn't that nice? Because if it hadn't been for that, I would have spent most of Wednesday Wednesday night in tears. Um, I hate losing my progress, and it's probably because I was raised on old school Nintendo. Um, A lot of scars. I don't like to talk about it. But kids today will never fully know what it's like to lose all your afternoon's progress in Zelda 2 when the game started skipping, you know? The heartache is real. Anyway... Nehemiah wants to avoid a similar fate. So if you're Nehemiah, how do you sustain this revival now that the wall is finished? How do you save your progress? How do you you keep the revival alive even after the initial mission is accomplished? Well, that's what these next couple chapters are really going to be about. And the first priority is making sure that the gates are well kept. In other words, making sure that the wall does its job. Now, you may have noticed that I read only a few verses of chapter seven. That is because I am not without mercy. I am not the good shepherd, but I'm trying to be a good shepherd. You know, it's a long chapter with a lot of names. And moreover, it is almost completely a repeat of Ezra chapter two, which we already covered. So I will not be doing a deep dive into all the names and all the numbers. You're welcome. But it is worth looking at why Nehemiah digs out these records from Ezra 2 and what he's trying to accomplish in this chapter. Uh, In some ways, it's like basic housekeeping, but there is a gospel heart behind it, and we're going to see that as we go on. Uh, In verse 1, Nehemiah reaffirms again that the the wall is in fact finished. He says, now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave, I'm sorry, pause there, that's verse 2. So, Nehemiah wants us to know he is in the process of finishing this thing. He has reassigned some of the people. Uh, So, he mentions the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites, all resuming their stations. Now, mentioning the singers and the Levites is a little bit strange in this verse. Uh, They don't have anything to do with the wall, technically. They are temple employees, and there are commentators out there who think this is like a slip of the pen, so to speak, like a typo. But I, I think the idea is that up until now, almost everyone has been on wall duty, right? Uh, Anyone who could be spared, including the temple staff. And now that the wall is done, the temple has a full staff again, the singers are back in the choir loft, all is as it should be. But the key element for this chapter is that the gatekeepers are on duty. This is a chapter about gatekeeping. And they're on duty now because they finally have actual gates to keep. That hasn't been the case up until now. And there's a couple elements to gatekeeping, but basically your job as a gatekeeper is to make sure the good guys are allowed in and that the bad guys aren't, right? And you could think of it as being similar to being a bouncer. If it helps, you can think of Nehemiah as the royal bartender now appointing some uh, some bouncers to assist him, you know? It's oddly appropriate. But the gatekeepers are are bouncers. They have a critical job here, especially. Uh, There are, by my count, Like, 12 or 13 gates have been mentioned at this point all around the city. There's the Corner Gate, the Gate of Ephraim, the Old Gate, the Fish Gate, the Sheep Gate, the muster Gate, the East Gate, the Guard Gate, the Water Gate, the Fountain Gate, the Dung Gate, the Valley Gate. Like, that's a lot of gates. And they all need gatekeepers. That's a pretty large staff that must be committed to the job, not to mention the various guard towers that were in between them and served a related function as the lookouts. And when you have that many gates that all have the same function and job, they need to work together. And, and, you know, you you don't want some suspicious character coming and getting rejected at one gate only to go to the next gate where they let him through. That kind of defeats the purpose, right? You need full coordination so this doesn't happen. I I remember once taking my, my, I'll call him my baby brother, he's six foot two now, uh, to a Phillies game. And we took him there, me and my older brother, uh, because there was a giveaway for kids under 14. But we wanted this Bobble Philly fanatic as well. So we bought like a half a dozen children's tickets for my kid brother. And we sent him through every turnstile and walked around Veterans Stadium doing this. By himself, he's like five years old, like wandering through here, you know? (laughs) leaving through the exit by himself and going again, you know, 100 feet later, and you're hoping that they think he's with some other adult, you know. Was it unethical? I don't know. We did pay for the tickets, and I still have that bobble. Um, anyway, Nehemiah is avoiding, looking to avoid that kind of thing. Uh, the stakes here obviously being much higher than a couple of losers collecting bobbleheads. And to do that, someone needs to oversee this entire gatekeeping staff, the security situation. Nehemiah needs deputies to supervise city security, because the wall is just a tool. A wall doesn't defend itself. It's sort of similar, owning a gun doesn't make you feel safe if you don't know how to use it, right? This wall will be useless unless you actually use it intelligently. It has to be manned by guards and gatekeepers, and they need to know their job. You need to have a sustainable defense plan, and this requires leadership. So Nehemiah decides to appoint a security committee of two two commissioners that are going to see that this wonderful ball does what it's supposed to do. And there's wisdom, as Kem was mentioning in Sunday school, in having two men on any given job. This is a big job. You need to have someone on duty at all hours as well. So you really need to. And, uh, you know, maybe having two bosses would make things inefficient, but these guys are just deputies. They're under Nehemiah himself. So there is a healthy chain of command. And these guys are essentially replacing, I think, the former leaders of the two Jerusalem districts that were mentioned back in chapter three. Nehemiah is putting his own chosen men in there. Now, how do you choose the right men for this job? That's a trickier question than it sounds. Uh, We spent most of chapter six learning that Nehemiah can't trust almost anybody. Uh, The nobles are all besties with his enemies. Some of them are related by marriage to his enemies, And even Shemaiah, an elderly, trusted advisor, had proved to be treacherous. So Nehemiah has to choose these men very carefully. And he settles on two names that sound nearly identical, which is always helpful. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Now, I'm no Hebrew scholar. Uh, but apparently Hanani is basically a nickname for Hananiah. So this is basically like hiring Harry and Harold, like, you know, very original here. It's almost like the Herods in the New Testament, like they can't come up with something new, apparently, I guess. But anyway, who were these men? Well, we know Hanani actually from chapter one, uh, because he is Nehemiah's brother, and Nehemiah is in Jerusalem because of Hanani. Hanani is the one who told Nehemiah that the city was broken down and in disgrace. That's how God placed this burden on Nehemiah's heart to begin with, right? And and now it's interesting, maybe a little odd, that Hanani hasn't been mentioned by name since then. Um, This is the first indication we have that he even tagged along with Nehemiah at all. But apparently uh, his brother has been included in the household of Nehemiah. uh, and, And we can assume he's been working here with Nehemiah the whole time. And so he has earned a role You could call this nepotism, I guess. Uh, I doubt that Hanani would have this job apart from Nehemiah, but no one can claim Hanani hasn't earned his stripes. He's been here from the very beginning, and Nehemiah's entire mission started with him. He was the instigator. And and maybe this is a good place to give a shout-out to the quiet instigators of the kingdom, because not everybody can be a charismatic leader, and not everybody can lead troops, and not everybody can make speeches, And not everybody can design buildings. Not everyone lives in the spotlight. Most of us don't. But there are many small actors who encourage others to serve God with their gifts. And God loves using those small people to steer history in subtle ways. So while Hanani doesn't get a lot of press, this story would not have started without him. So think of it as uh, Paul's concept that Paul plants Apollos waters, but God gives the growth. Don't underestimate the power of your words influence a brother or sister. But Hanani gets this job largely, I mean, you could summarize it as that Nehemiah can trust him. And after this episode with Shemaiah, Nehemiah is being very careful. He can't trust many people, but he can trust family. So he turns to him. Now, as for Hananiah, this pick is a little more obscure. Two Hananias have been mentioned previously. Both were working on the wall in chapter three. One was a perfumer, not much is said about the other guy. This is probably an entirely different Hananiah, uh, because we're told explicitly that he is the governor of the castle or citadel, depending on the translation you're using. Now, it's not entirely clear to me which castle they mean here. Uh, This could be a reference to the governor's residence. It could be a reference to the castle back in Persia. I don't know. Either way, the impression we're left with is that this is someone who has worked closely with Nehemiah because he's lived in both. And this guy runs the household. Maybe in both places, we don't know. But governing a castle or a house or a mansion is not the same as governing a city, is it? This guy is probably more like a head butler, if you want to think of it that way. He's the guy who's ordering all the meat and drink for these nightly feasts we talked about in chapter five. So Nehemiah, the royal bartender, just promoted the butler to head of security. And maybe this explains why Nehemiah feels the need to explain this choice. Some commentators observe that he has to justify this one. You know, it's funny. He doesn't try to justify choosing his brother. That's just kind of expected. But he feels compelled to justify the choice of Hananiah as if there may have been some doubt in his readership about the qualifications this man has. But I love Nehemiah's stated reason for hiring him. It's not his resume as a castle governor. It's not his unique name obviously. And it's not because he's my friend, and it's not because he knows how to wield a sword. It's that he was more faithful and more God-fearing than many other men. And you're getting now an interesting picture of how Nehemiah's governorship is going to be defined. The qualification for leadership in Nehemiah's Jerusalem is not primarily age or experience. Rather, the qualifications are faithfulness and the fear of God. And again, this comes from the lesson Nehemiah learned last week with Shemaiah. He has learned that your resume is less important than your character. He knows his brother's heart was broken for Jerusalem, and he has seen Hananiah's faithfulness and fear of God up close as he's run the house. So in Nehemiah's mind, that makes them qualified. He can trust them. And I also love that faithfulness and fear of God doesn't mean that they're perfect, because Nehemiah doesn't say that Hananiah was the most faithful man ever in all of Jerusalem, all time. He just says that he was better than many. And Nehemiah values that more highly than expertise. So he wants these two men to be in charge of defending Jerusalem, of gatekeeping, and what qualifies them for such a job is faithfulness and the fear of God. But Nehemiah also gives some specific guidelines for how he wants them to defend Jerusalem. In verse 3, He says, I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. Now, apparently this is syntactically kind of an odd verse. But the gist is that Nehemiah is still highly concerned, obviously, with the security situation in Jerusalem. He wants the gates to be open, but only for very limited hours. Don't open them until the sun is already scorching and miserable. Don't open them until the sun is so hot that, like, nobody in their right mind would be here unless they had legitimate business. And close them long before the guards get tired. In other words, only while people are sweating and sluggish, right? These are not convenient business hours in the Middle East. But the purpose is clear. When you open late and have an early curfew, then you're avoiding the hours of dawn and dusk, which are dangerous times for sneak attacks. Think of our national anthem. It's a song about an early morning battle, right? Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light, right? It's hard to launch a sneak attack at midday with the sun up above you. Everyone can see and everyone's awake. And if you enter Jerusalem at that time, odds are you're there on legitimate business. And he also commands them to place some guards at the gates and others in front of their homes. So he wants 24-hour police presence throughout the city. So even if the enemies breach one gate, the city would still be on its guard. And it's clear here that Nehemiah still expects the worst of his enemies. So he's not letting his guard down even a little. The enemies may be afraid, according to chapter 6, verse 16, but the fear, fear is often a motive for actually horrible actions and desperate actions. And Nehemiah knows that. He, he fully expects the enemies of God are not going to sleep. The enemy never sleeps. He's relentless, and he adapts, and the wall will not save them from all that danger. They need to remain vigilant. And in fact, even with a wall and gates, the situation is very tenuous, and verse 4 actually gives an insight into how tenuous this whole situation really is. He says, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Now, I think it's probably more accurate to say that the reading here should be that they were not all rebuilt. Uh, We know from chapter three that a number of houses are in fact already occupied. Uh, And in fact, Nehemiah mentions homes in the very previous verse, right? So, you know, and Nehemiah himself lives in the city. Uh, So there are definitely some homes, but overall he says the place is mostly empty. Uh, Those who lived here during construction were basically just kind of camping out. You would have had people sleeping on floors and in tents and on rooftops, And even if you included all the exiles, moving them all in, they're not really enough to do this city justice. It's like an empty shell, a Potemkin village, if you will. Those of you not well-versed in Cold War history, Potemkin village, uh, that's a village that is built for show, for outsiders, but isn't really real, meaning no one actually lives in it. Uh, This is typical in communist countries, including the Soviet Union. Uh, China still does it. Uh, They've been known to build entire cities expressly for the purpose of showing off to Westerners just how advanced we are, but you're not actually allowed to go there and their ghost towns. If you've ever wondered what the largest indoor mall in the world is, if you do those kind of Google searches, for a brief time, maybe 10 years ago, the answer was uh, supposedly the South China Mall. The answer was a controversial one, however, uh, because, and not not, not based on size, it's a nearly 10 million square foot building with room for as many as 2,350 stores. But three years after being built, it was 99% unoccupied. And it was such an embarrassment that the government actually forbade tourists from going in and taking pictures of the many empty floors, because it was creepy. They claim now on Wikipedia that it has now recovered. I'll believe it when I see it. But that's kind of how Jerusalem sounds right now. It's just a shell. It looks good from the outside, but the inside is still kind of a wreck. There's lots of rubble, a few people, some struggling businesses, and lots of empty retail space. It's like downtown Allentown. I'm kidding, but only a little Now, on one level, that sounds depressing, right? But but the sense here that you get is that God has every intention of filling this place. God is going to fill his house. He builds before he fills. And he often works that way. Even in the very beginning, you, you, you look at Genesis and he creates a habitat before he fills it with creatures, he creates sky and water and land, and, and it's all prepared before the animals fill it. He creates a garden, and then he plops the gardener in it. And even in the New Testament, Jesus declares the arrival of the kingdom of heaven before anyone even understands what he's talking about or has knowingly become a citizen thereof. And insofar as Jerusalem represents Sort of God's kingdom on earth, its home on earth. It is fair to say that the city is inhabited with or without citizens. The, the kingdom has come if the king is here with or without loyal subjects. The most important inhabitant is already there. The temple is built. The king will fill the city in due time. But for now, Jerusalem would look de- pretty desolate. Just a handful of people in a mostly empty shell. Not unlike a Phillies game in the mid-90s. So the gatekeepers don't have much to keep, but it's in the midst of this that Nehemiah decides to take a census, beginning in verse 5. I'm just going to read verse 5. I, again, I'm not going that far here. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy, and I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, etc., etc. Sorry to stop there mid-thought. Again, I don't want to go over the list in detail with you all. This is essentially the same as Ezra 2. I did do, for your sake, a pretty thorough comparison of those passages on Wednesday just to make sure some of the numbers change, some names are reordered or spelled differently. There's nothing earth-shattering. There are many possible explanations, none of which are going to help you with your walk with Jesus this week. So I won't get into them. But the main point is that Nehemiah wants accuracy. He wants to know who is in and who is out. He's looking at the original list and comparing it to today to see who's still here. Now, for those of you well-versed in Old Testament stories, the idea of a census may ring a bell. Because King David once did a census and was severely rebuked for it. In 1 Chronicles 21, you will read how David commanded Joab to go to a census. Joab rebukes King David and urges him against it, but David insisted, and Joab drags his feet and does it. He excludes the tribes of Levi and Benjamin out of contempt for the order. But the point is, shortly after this, God sends David a prophet to rebuke him directly, and this prophet basically tells David, he says, look, you have three choices of punishment. You either get famine... War, which you're going to lose, or sickness. I always hated when my mom made me choose a punishment. That's rough. David ends up with pestilence and 70,000 men die. All because he ordered a census. Well, you may not know your Old Testament all that well, but I'm thinking Nehemiah knows it pretty well. Why does he think A census is a good idea if he knows his Bible. What makes this different from what David did? Well, a couple things here. One very obvious difference is that this was not actually Nehemiah's idea. He says very clearly God put this into his heart. And that's the same language we saw in chapter 2 when Nehemiah was going to inspect the walls. He said, I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Same thing here. He is doing this out of a God-given concern for Jerusalem. And the purpose is quite different from David, because when you read 1 Chronicles 21, it's very obvious what David is doing. When Joab comes back, he he reports not how many total men, women, and children. He doesn't report on their income and occupation and where they're living or whatever. He reports on how many men can draw a sword. David is counting swords, not souls which means it's about his power. How many potential soldiers do I have available if I open up the draft? That's not what Nehemiah is doing here, and that's not what God has put on his heart. Nehemiah is counting heads for the same reason I count my children before bedtime. And it's the same reason I won't go to bed if one of my children is still out of the house at night. Why do I count my kids every night? I count them because they count. I don't even like when one of them goes away for a night or two. I find it unsettling. The house doesn't feel right. And bedtime becomes awkward. They are not swords; They are souls. And I want to make sure that they're all accounted for. And you start to realize there is a direct connection between this census and the job of the gatekeepers. It's why one follows on the other. Because this tells the gatekeepers who is allowed into the city, who the citizens are, but it also tells you who to look for if they don't come back in time when it's time to close the gates at night. I think this reflects an almost maternal concern for the people of God. Nehemiah does not want the city to be in disgrace again. He doesn't want anyone lost or unaccounted for. His heart is burdened to protect his flock, to protect God's chosen people so that none will be lost. And that's why we see this language about Nehemiah's heart here. You don't have a heart for just numbers and statistics. That's weird. But you can have a heart for souls. This is a burden of love, and I think that the nearest parallel to this passage is actually something that Jesus says. Two different locations, identical language, Luke 13 and Matthew 23, when he's working his way toward Jerusalem. And Jesus breaks out in this lament. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing God has a soft spot for his people and his city. Something caught my eye when I was reading up on David's senses, and it actually moved me. God is so furious in that story. And he has every intention of teaching David a really hard lesson because David was treating the people like numbers, swords, not souls. And to punish David, the angel of God kills many men across the countryside. But when the angel gets to Jerusalem, God tells him to stop. He can't stomach it. And he says, that's enough. Leave Jerusalem alone. He can't bear to strike his city. God's heart is inclined to spare his people and to have mercy. And I think Nehemiah here is trying to gather the children of Jerusalem as a hen gathers her chicks. He is a picture of Jesus in this scene doing what Jesus wanted to do but Jerusalem wouldn't allow him. He does this census so he can name his people and so that no one will be missed. And it's not unlike the reasons we keep a membership role even in the church. We don't love statistics either. It's not a list of swords. It's a list of souls. It's not just the names of those who should be tithing, right, or people who are eligible to serve on committees, no, it's, it's the names that we, your elders, your gatekeepers, are responsible for. The flock that should all be accounted for, that none should be lost. That's also why we try to keep it accurate. It's why we remove those who have left, or those who have abandoned the faith, or those who move. And why we add those who come to faith in Christ. It's why we baptize their children, as we will do later today. It's why we admit them to the table, why we discipline them, why we do that to lead them to their repentance And it's even why we correct the misspellings. You know, just a couple weeks ago, I learned I was using the wrong last name for the Gomez family. I'm, I'm just a dumb American. I didn't know. But their name is important. They are on the rolls in the census. I am responsible for them as a gatekeeper. Every one of you should be accounted for. I don't do a great job of that. This is convicting for me as a pastor. But this passage is encouraging as well because it reminds us that God keeps the ultimate list of names. And he doesn't depend on Nehemiah's census or mine. He puts this on Nehemiah's heart because it was on his heart first. Nehemiah's heart is a reflection of God's and of Christ's. His people must all be accounted for he intends to gather us all under his wing just as we do with our children not because they're assets but because we love them we count them because they count and that's what drives nehemiah that's what god has laid on his heart and that's how nehemiah points us to jesus in this chapter jesus keeps his own list a much more accurate one it's a list of his people his elect the people that he died for And praise God, Jesus is a better gatekeeper than I am, better than Nehemiah even. He is faithful and God-fearing, not more than many or most, but more than all. And he's not just the gatekeeper, he's himself the gate. As he says in John 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Beloved Jesus is the gatekeeper. And you're at his mercy, and that's not a bad place to be. If you have trusted him, then you're on his list, and the door will always be open for you. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious <clears throat> God and Father, we thank you for your word, and we cannot begin to thank you enough that you do keep a record of all the names, Lord, that there is a book of life in which those of us are in Christ, our name is there and cannot be erased. And the door is not only open to us, Lord, you will not leave us unaccounted for. Jerusalem resisted being brought under Jesus' wing, Lord, but that will not be so for the elect. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that Jesus is the gate, that he is the door, that you have made a way and that none of your children are lost. We Thank you for that, Lord. We pray that you would help us to live in that assurance this week. We ask these things in Christ's name. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.